good to see you this morning. Wherever you are in your spiritual journey or whatever it is that's brought you here this morning, we're glad you're here with us. If you do have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 1. If you are new with us this morning, or perhaps it's been a while since you've been with us, then you may not know that we started a new series on Genesis 1 through 3 two weeks ago. We take books of the Bible here at Fremont E. Free, or portions of books of the Bible, and preach to them verse by verse. And the reason we do that is we want the Word of God to set the agenda. We know that there are enough opinions that exist out there. We know that there are enough screaming voices. But what we desperately need is to hear from God's Word. And that's why we take books of the Bible, in this case, Genesis 1 through 3, and preach through it verse by verse. The hope is that we'll grow in our love for God, our Creator, that we'll grow in our understanding of the world, seeing it through His lens, and ultimately that we will see the great hope that's in Jesus Christ. So that's what we have for an expectation every time we open the Bible. Let me pray, and we'll get to Genesis 1 this morning. Uh, God, we thank you for the great opportunity that we have this morning to open your word together. What a privilege that is, that you would communicate to us through creation, but also specifically through your word. The special revelation of your word, we are blessed to be able to have it, and to be able to open it together today is a privilege. And we pray that we would have ears to hear. We pray that you would help us to grow in our understanding of who you are this morning. We pray that you'd help us to grow in seeing the world through your lens this morning. Father, we are asking that you would just minister to us. We come to you admitting that we have all kinds of distractions in our heart, all kinds of things going on in our life, but what we want in this moment is to hear your voice. Speak, O oh Lord. Speak to us through your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this last summer, our family took a week-long trip to Colorado to visit our good friends, the Hanemans. We spent a week, or excuse me, a few days in Rocky Mountain National Park, and then the rest of the week we stayed at our friends, the Hanemans' house in Boulder. It was a great trip, primarily because the Hanemans are committed to following Jesus, and thus it was encouraging to be around them all week. We left Colorado spiritually refreshed at the renewed desire to be more intentional pursuing Jesus as a family. But as much as we loved the trip, and it was an awesome one, I have to admit there were also some parts of the trip that were a bit eye-opening for our family. And those eye-opening moments were tied almost exclusively to where the Hanemans live, Boulder. Now, I don't know how much you know about Boulder, Colorado. It's an incredibly beautiful city located in the foothills of the Rockies and overlooked by the Flatirons. The natural beauty of the city is just astounding. And because the University of Colorado is there, there's a general vibrancy and youthfulness and energy that you can just feel in the city. On top of that, there are tons of trails and parks in and around Boulder that make it a fun place to visit and explore. So Boulder has a lot going for it. But having said this, or having said that, I'm just going to say this as kindly as I can, Boulder is a weird place. As another friend of mine who lived in Boulder once described it, Boulder is 25 square miles surrounded by reality. Simply put, there are some free thinkers in Boulder that make you wonder, are we even on the same planet here? Case in point, while we were in Boulder, one afternoon we took our kids to go tubing down Boulder Creek, which is a creek that just runs through the city. Now, to access that creek, you have to park your car, and then you have to walk a fairly lengthy distance through a city park. And I'm just going to go ahead and tell you up front, there is some really odd stuff happening at that park. There were people in the park wearing bizarre costumes. Keep in mind, this is not Halloween. This is the middle of July. There are a group of people dancing what I can only describe as a hallucinogenic-like state. And strangest of all, there were a few people on their hands and knees eating grass like cows. And all of this was happening in the middle of the day on a weekday. I can only imagine what that place is like on a weekend evening. So when I say that Boulder is an eye-opening experience, I don't mean it was just eye-opening for our kids. I mean it was eye-opening for me too, and even thought-provoking. In particular, in the days that followed, I found myself thinking a lot about those people eating grass like cows. And I found myself wondering, how in the world did they get to that point? 
How do they lose sight of what it means to be human? Why would they want to act like an animal? But as shocking as that incident was initially, the more I've thought about it, the more I've realized that maybe I shouldn't have been so surprised. About 10 years ago, I was at a pastor's conference. One of the speakers at that conference made the argument that in the days to come, one of the great battlegrounds in our culture and in the church won't be over the doctrine of salvation or over the doctrine of the Trinity or over the doctrine of Scripture, although all those things will be important and debated. But rather, he made the argument one of the great battlegrounds will be over the doctrine of man. What does it mean to be human? At the time, I'm not sure I was convinced by his argument. But with the benefit of retrospect, I have to admit, I think he was on to something. When you look at the culture around us and you see the widespread confusion that exists regarding identity in so many different areas, it seems that we have indeed lost sight of what it primarily means to actually be a human. And furthermore, when you think about the way that we treat life or the disregard that we have for it, or the way that we treat each other or the disregard we have for each other, those things too would seem to indicate we've forgotten what makes us valuable. Indeed, confusion abounds regarding the doctrine of man which is probably why I should not have been so surprised that they were eating grass in the park, those people were. Now, obviously, they were an extreme example, but they were an indication of the confusion that exists. And so I would argue we need to recover the doctrine of man. We need to rediscover what does it mean to be human. We need to remember what is it that makes us unique and valuable. I don't think there's any better place to start addressing those questions than by the place that we're looking today, which is Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. Now, for the sake of orientation, before we get to verses 26 and 27, I should probably briefly recap where we've been so far in the book of Genesis. Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, two weeks ago, we talked about God being the creator of all things. We talked about how he's at the center of the story. Last week, we looked at verses 3 through 25, and we looked at some themes that we saw in the first five days of creation. We also started to look at the sixth day, As we saw last week on the sixth day, God created living creatures according to their kind. He made the beasts of the earth and the livestock and every creeping creeping thing that creeps on the ground. But as it turns out, the sixth day was not finished. God makes something else on the sixth day, and that something else signals a significant shift in the creation story. And so that's where we pick up the story now in verses 26 and 27, the middle of the sixth day. If you're able to stand, I'm going to ask you to stand at this point out of reverence for the reading of God's word. Standing is a simple way we can remind ourselves it's the Word of God, and as such, it's due our attention. Just two verses this morning, two verses that are packed with important information. Verses 26 and 27 says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You may be seated. Now it's clear from the content of verse 26 that something important important is happening at this point in the creation narrative. Because at this juncture in the account, the pace of the story slows down. The details increase. And even the language itself changes. For example, I want you to listen to verse 24, which is the verse we looked at last week, and then compare it to verse 26. All right, so verse 24, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. So that verse starts, God says, let the earth bring forth. Now verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So 
there's clearly a difference in the way those two verses are communicated. Verse 26 is much more personal. Now, as verse 25 makes clear, God is clearly the one who created the beasts of the earth. It wasn't that the earth itself created these animals, but clearly the creation of man is just different. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. That is intensely personal. By the way, there's no way you could derive the doctrine of the Trinity solely from a reading of verse 26. It's pretty vague. But I do think verse 26 is hinting at the plurality of the Godhead. As Christians, we believe there is one God and three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And the language of verse 26, let us make man in our image, is language that seems to point in the direction of the Trinity. Now, some would say, well, God's actually talking about making man in his image and in the image of angels. But that doesn't make sense of verse 27, because clearly it's not God and angels that we're creating the image of. It's God alone. And so I think verse 26 is at least pointing us in the direction of the Trinity. Nevertheless, the larger point we're making here is that there's this significant shift in verse 26. The man is clearly different than the rest of God's creation. And in the last few verses of chapter 1, which we'll look at next week, that point will be driven home even further. Because as we'll see in verse 31, while all of God's creation is good, it's not until God takes a step back and looks at man that he declares it to be very good. So there's something different about the creation of man. We're not using hyperbole to say that we are the apex of his handiwork. But what is it that makes us different? Or to ask it from our perspective, why is it a big deal that we are human? Clearly the content and structure verses 26 and 27 is indicating to us there is something different about us. But what is it that makes us valuable? What does it mean to be a person? Or maybe to ask it as simply as we can, who are we? Now, obviously, that's a pretty complex question. I don't want to oversimplify things here and make it seem as if understanding our humanity is an easy thing. But having said that, I think there are two key foundational truths that we can look at here in verses 26 and 27 that will at least begin to help us understand what it means to be human. And so the, if the question is, what does it mean to be human or who are we? I would propose that these two foundational truths that we see in verses 26 and 27 at least give us a start to answering those questions. So foundational truth number one is this. We are creatures. We are creatures. Now to be sure, for reasons we'll talk about here in a second, namely that we're created in the image of God, humans are different than the rest of creation. But while we are different than the rest of creation, let us not be mistaken. We are still creatures. We are not the creator Instead, we've been created by God. And the text of verses 26 and 27 makes this abundantly clear. In fact, look at verse 26 to start with. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So verse 26, let us make man, let them have dominion. God is the one doing the acting here. Man or mankind is the one being acted upon. So God is clearly the one initiating. We see the same thing in verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Three times in verse 27, the verb create appears. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So the emphasis in both verse 26 and verse 27 is on the creative work of God. God is the one doing the creating. We are just the creatures. This is entirely consistent with Genesis 1, by the way. 32 times in Genesis 1, the name God appears. He is the one driving all the action in this chapter. 
He is the creator. We are the creatures. Now, as I said a couple weeks ago, we have a tendency to think that we are the center of the universe. But in the creation story, humans don't even show up until day six. In the beginning, it was not God and us. In the beginning, it was just God. We are the creatures. He is the creator. Now, having said that, it's important that we understand that there is something different about our creatureness compared to other creatures. We're not a creature in the same way that a bear is a creature, or a creature in the same way that a snail is a creature, or a creature in the same way that a dolphin is. We are unique amongst God's creation. And that brings us to the second foundational truth of what it means to be human. If the first is we are creatures, the second is we are image bearers. Now, listen again to the language of verses 26 and 27. And notice this idea of being created in his image comes up multiple times. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So in verse 26, we're told, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then in verse 27, the first poem in the Bible appears. And the first two lines of that poem are structured in, so way, structured in such a way so as to draw our attention to the idea that we are creating God's image. The technical term for the poetic structure here is a chiasm. It's a literary device in which a sequence of ideas is presented in one way and then is presented in the next line in the reverse order. That's exactly what we see in verse 27. So God created man in his own image, and then coming back the other way, in the image of God, he created him. And then there's a third line, which adds some detail. Male and female, he created them. Now that them in verse 27 is important. It tells us that it wasn't just one man creating God's image, Adam. It was mankind creating God's image. Furthermore, the use of them also clues us in that it's not just men creating the image of God, but it is women too. And that reality is confirmed by the last line of verse 27, which says, male and female, he created them. Now, I don't want to go too far into the male and female weeds this morning, as the main point of verse 27 is clearly that we are creating the image of God. But given all that's going on culturally, I think it's at least worth noting and pausing here and pointing out that God's good design and creation means creating us male and female. So contrary to what you may have been seeing on the news or hearing on social media or maybe hearing from your classmates at school, gender is not a social construct. Gender is part of God's good design from the beginning, from the very beginning, even before the fall, he made us male and female. Now this is something that Jesus will reiterate after the fall in the New Testament, that we were made male and female. And as we'll see in Genesis chapter 2, not only were we made male and female, but we were given unique roles to play. And those differences between men and women are part of his good design. In other words, this is part of his intentional design, which he declares to be very good. And to deny that, that God made us this way, male and female, or to suggest that we should be the ones to determine our own gender, is to put ourselves in the role of creator. And that's a dangerous place to be because we are not the creator, we are just creatures. He is the creator and gender is part of his good design for creation. He made us male and female. And it would seem to me that our culture has completely lost sight of this. And listen, as those who love the world around us, we need to have the courage and the love to be able to point back and say, no, this has always been God's good design. Now, having said that, let me clarify this too. Having courage doesn't mean that we're unloving or that we have to be jerks about it or that we're unsympathetic to those who are struggling with gender confusion. Listen, the church is a hospital for hurting and broken people. So if you know someone who's struggling with this, or for that matter, if you're here today and struggling with this, please know 
If you're here today, we're glad you're here. Jesus came to help those who are hurting and broken. And our goal as the church is the same. We want to love and help those who are hurting. But it would be unloving for us not to point back to God's good design. God created us male and female. And so no matter what the world may say to us, running from that design will never lead to lasting joy. God is the one who created the universe. He knows the way the universe best works. Now we'll have more to say about God's design for male and female in chapter 2. I think it's just worth stopping here and pointing out that this is part of his good creation. Having said that, though, verse 27, again, we need to point out that the emphasis here is not on the male and female part, but rather on the fact that we're created in God's image. Male and female is just part of that. The focus is on image bearing, which leads to an obvious follow-up question. What exactly does it mean to bear God's image? Now, I don't think there's necessary, necessarily a clear-cut, simple way to answer that question. In my office, I have a book that I got during my seminary days, and the book is simply entitled, Created in God's Image. It's a book just about this topic, Genesis 127. What does it mean to be created in God's image? The book is 264 pages long. So the idea that I could stand up here and say, in one sentence, this is what it means to be created in God's image is probably a bit optimistic. But I do think the text itself gives us some clues so we can at least head in that direction. So let's listen again specifically to verse 26, because I think verse 26 gives us some clues what it means to be made in the image of God. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. All right, so two things stick out in verse 26. One is the use of a synonym. You'll notice we're told in verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Image and likeness are being used synonymously there. They are synonyms. It's helping us to understand what does it mean to be made in God's image? It means that we're made in his likeness. It means that we're like him in some way. And if you think of it, this is often the way we use the word image. For example, if someone has a baby, we might say something like, well, he's a spitting image of his dad. By that, we mean there's a resemblance. They carry similar characteristics. Now, obviously, God does not have a body like us. So to be made in God's image doesn't mean, oh, we have a nose like him or our hair looks like his. And for that matter, clearly we're not like God in a lot of ways. So we're not saying we're exactly like him. But what we are saying is there are some similarities. And that's one of the things we can observe from the language of verse 26. But there's a second thing that sticks out in verse 26 regarding what it means to be an image bearer. Notice, right after talking about being created in his image, God then talks about giving to man dominion over the fish, of the sea and over the birds of the air and over livestock and over every creeping thing that creeps on the ground. That additional information would seem to suggest that being created in God's image comes with a role to play. In other words, being created in his image means that we do something. Just as God ruled over creation, we are to rule over creation. Not as the king, by the way, but as the vice regent, as the under king, as the steward. As image bearers, then, we have a role to play. So if you put those two pieces together from verse 26 likeness and function, what does it mean to be created in God's image? I think Wayne Grudem gives us a helpful start in systematic theology. He defines the image of God this way. To be made in the image of God means that man is like God and represents God. Or to quote author Hannah Anderson, who wrote a book on the image of God, she says this, being human means sharing God's nature in some way. Being human means living as he lives and doing what he does. So to be created in the image of God is to be like God in some ways and to represent him. Now again, obviously there are ways in which we're not like God. 
But there are ways in which we're like God in the ways that the rest of creation is not. We're spiritual beings like God. We have morality and we can reason, think logically in ways that the rest of creation cannot. Furthermore, we're also uniquely relational in the way that we relate to one another in the way that the rest of creation is not also. So we are like God in the ways that the rest of creation is not. Furthermore, unlike the rest of creation, we have also been given the task of representing God. We are to exercise dominion over creation. We are to be his under kings. We are to live as he lives and do what he does. So to be created in the image of God then is to be like God and to represent God. So taking a step back now and trying to summarize what we've said to this point, I think we can conclude that being human means fundamentally at least two things. One, that we are creatures, and two, that we are image bearers, which means that we are like him and we represent him. Now, those two two foundational truths are important enough that I think we should slow down here and make sure that we understand what we're talking about. If understanding that we're creatures and image bearers is crucial in understanding what it means to be human, then slowing down and considering the significance of being a creature and an image bearer is probably worth it if our goal is to figure out what does it mean to be human. So I have two follow-up questions to our foundational truths this morning. Follow-up question number one, what is the significance of being a creature? Follow-up question two, what is the significance of being an image bearer? So let's start with the first one. What is the significance of being a creature? Now, there are a lot of ways we could answer that question. But for the sake of simplicity, let me just give you two ways or two things that are significant about us being a creature. All right, so significant aspect number one. To be a creature means that we are limited. It means that we are limited. To quote one of my pastor friends, as creatures, there are some ways in which we differ from God significantly. These differences may be summarized in a word, limitations. We have them, God does not. That's true, isn't it? We are extraordinarily limited, especially in comparison to God. For example, God is omniscient, knowing all things. We tend to think we know it all, but the reality is we, know, we only know a small fraction of a small fraction of what's happening in the universe. God is omnipresent, being all places at all times. We are limited by space. As we often say in exasperation, I can't be in two places at one time. God never changes, steadfast in every way. On the other hand, we are like a roller coaster. We change from week to week, day to day, sometimes even hour to hour. With God, all things are possible. With us, very few things are possible. God has no body. Our bodies are weak and frail and often give way to sickness and injury, and eventually, eventually we die. I could keep going, but I think you get the point here. We have limitations, which is why it's particularly crazy that we would then put ourselves in the place of God and declare that we know better than he does which is essentially what we do when we sin. When we sin, we reject God's word, we reject his design, and we say we know better. Now, do you realize how crazy that is? To recognize all of the limitations that we have in comparison to God and then make a decision, yeah, but I still know better. That's crazy. Think of it this way. If I walked up to a farmer and started giving all kinds of advice about how to plant crops or how to harvest, or how to raise livestock, at some point, the farmer might ask the question, what experience do you have? Or what makes you think you know how to farm better than me? And if my response to those questions was, well, I don't have any experience, and I don't know what I'm doing at all, then I think we can all agree the farmer would say, you're crazy, I'm not going to listen to you. Furthermore, the very idea that I would be dispensing advice without any experience and without any knowledge is kind of the height of arrogance, is it not? In the same way, Unless you have experience creating the universe, which I'm guessing you don't, 
Not many of us have that on our resume, right? Like I worked here and here, oh, I created the universe. We don't have that on our resume because we didn't do it. On top of that, unless you have the wisdom to say, oh, I know how to uphold the universe by the word of power, which again, I'm guessing you don't, then perhaps we need to be humble enough to admit, maybe God knows more than we do. And maybe he knows what he's doing more than we do, and maybe his design for the universe is better than our design. Now listen, I understand that admitting that is sometimes hard, especially when we don't always like what God does. Why does God let kids get sick? And I don't mean just with the cold, I mean really sick. Why does God let loved ones die too early? Why does God allow awful things like abuse to happen in the world? Honestly, I don't know the answer to those questions. But I have to admit, I have some serious limitations. And so do you. I don't know all things. I can't see all things. I wasn't there at the start of the universe. Or to use language from Job, I don't tell the mountain goats where to give birth, nor do I tell the ocean where to stop. I'm just a creature. And one of the significant realities of my creatureness is I have limitations. And so do you. Significant aspect number two. The first significant aspect is to be a creature means we're limited. The second significant aspect is this. To be a creature means we are dependent. Not too long ago, I went on a quick trip and stayed with a friend of mine for several days. At the time, I think he had two kids under the age of four. And I have to admit, now that my kids are a little bit older, I'd kind of forgotten what it was like to be around young kids. They are completely dependent upon their parents for almost everything. And yet, oddly enough, they seem like, or they seem to think they are completely independent. In particular, my friend had a three-year-old son. And this guy was just a walking mess. I, I loved him. He was awesome. But everywhere he went, it was just like a cloud of dust followed him. He was muddy, playing outside, food on his face, spots on his clothes all the time. Like most three-year-olds, he was just in need of constant help. And like most three-year-olds, his constant refrain was still, well, I can do it myself. But anyone who watched for 30 seconds would be like, no, nah, that's not true. You can't do it yourself. You need help. There's an old phrase. Some people can't walk and chew bubblegum at the same time. Having lived with this kid for a few days, I would say, well, he couldn't really walk very well because he'd fall, and I wouldn't give him bubblegum no matter what. In other words, it wasn't just that he couldn't walk and chew bubblegum, it's that he really couldn't do either. And yet the crazy part of it was is that he thought he could do everything. He had this irrational confidence. He was completely unaware of how dependent he was. But if we're honest, we're a lot like that three-year-old, aren't we? We think we can conquer worlds. We think we can overcome any obstacle. We say that we are the masters and commanders of our fate. And yet Acts 17 tells us God is the one who gives us life and breath and everything else we need. In fact, when you go to bed at night, you have to admit you are far more dependent than you want to admit. None of us stay up all night telling ourselves, breathe, breathe, breathe. No, it's God who sustains us. We are dependent upon him. James 1 says it this way. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. 1 Corinthians 4. What do you have that you did not receive? The point is we are completely dependent upon him for everything. But like a three-year-old, we sometimes like to think, well, I can do it myself. But listen, you are dependent. And actually, understanding your dependence is freeing because you can't do it on your own, but the good news is you don't have to. As a, cold, as a creature, you are limited and dependent but we know one who has no limitations and is completely independent. And the good news is, he is waiting for us with open arms. If you run to him, he's willing to help in your time of need. So my encouragement to you this morning is embrace your creatureness. Acknowledge your limitations. 
admit your dependence, and then run to the one who can do something about it. But also remember, you're not just a creature. You're not just another animal. You're not just meat with bones. You are an image bearer. And that brings us to our second follow-up question. What's the significance of being an image bearer? Well, again, there are a lot of ways we could answer that question, but let me just offer two significant aspects of being an image bearer. Significant aspect number one, to be created in the image of God means we are valuable. We're valuable in a way that the rest of creation is not. Years ago, I remember reading about a professor at Princeton who argued that apes and chimpanzees, on the basis of their intelligence, should have the same rights as human beings, including voting rights. Even this week, I was reading an article about some modern philosophers arguing that plants should have rights like humans too. Now, for the record, I think as Christians, we should be good stewards of both animals and plants. But to argue that plants and animals deserve the same rights as humans is to fundamentally misunderstand what it is that gives us value. What gives us value is not what we can do or our intelligence or what we accomplish. No, our value as humans comes primarily from one thing. We are made in the image of God. We are made in the image of God. We are like him in ways that the rest of creation is not. And listen, this changes the way we view ourselves and it changes the way we view others too. Regardless of a person's race or intellectual capabilities or socioeconomic status or political views or their size or their beauty or their hair color or their bank account or their womb status, meaning are they in the womb or out of the womb, people are valuable simply because they are made in God's image. And by the way, this is still true even after the fall. We've distorted that image, no doubt, and we'll get to that here in just a minute. But the fact of the matter is that Genesis 9 and James 3 confirm we are still image bearers. And that has implications for many of the issues that we're facing in society. Abortion would be an an obvious one, but so too with the topic of race. I know we've been having a lot of discussions about race in our country the last few years, and those conversations are probably needed. But it seems to me that we're always starting that conversation in the wrong place. It's not the color of your skin that makes you more valuable or less valuable. It's not your pigmentation that means that you should be heard or not be heard. No, every person on this planet has value because they are made in the image of God. So whether we look like a person or not, or whether we can relate to their culture or not, or whether we agree with them or not politically, or whether we even like them or not is irrelevant to the fact that we are all created in the image of God. And therefore, we should have a love and a care for all human beings, regardless of their background, regardless of what they may think, regardless of even if we like them. We treat them as image bearers. And listen, some of you have forgotten that. I know I can forget this at times. Maybe when you're on the other end of a call with a telemarketer or an insurance person, you're not thinking they're an image bearer, you're just thinking they're an obstacle. Or maybe in traffic, as people are driving, you're not thinking, a fellow image bearer beside me. Instead, you're thinking, why that guy cut me off? Or we could keep going on and on, couldn't we? But the fact of the matter is that we must never forget that our fellow humans also bear the image of our great God. And thus, to mistreat them or to treat them as if they're less than human is to misunderstand what gives them value, and it is dishonoring to our great God. Now, I think it's also important to say this. Some of you may need to be reminded about that for the sake of how you treat others, but some of you in this room also need to be reminded that you are created in the image of God for your own sake. Maybe over the years you've started to think of yourself as worthless. Maybe someone's told you that. Maybe maybe you had a parent that told you that for a long time, you're worthless. Or maybe you haven't met your own expectations. But hear this clearly this morning. You are valuable because you are created in God's image. The great and perfect God who created all things made you in his image, and thus you are valuable. 
And that's one significant aspect of what it means to be created in his image. Here's the, a second significant aspect. To be created in the image of God means we have responsibility. If being created in the image of God means that we're both like God in some ways and that we represent him, then that representation of him carries with it enormous responsibility. First time I went to Taiwan on a mission trip, we had several training meetings beforehand. And one of the things that we talked about is that people in Taiwan, they might have a certain feeling for what American Christianity is like based on American movies, which is really sad, by the way. Right? And so our, our goal as we went is to represent what actual Christianity is like. It's not like Hollywood. Hollywood does not represent American Christianity. The, the thinking is, oh, all Americans are Christians, therefore everything we see on the movies must be Christianity. Obviously, that's not true. But the thinking was, and this is not just true in Taiwan, but in lots of countries around the world, that's kind of the perception. And so the charge to us as we went on this mission trip is that we need to live in such a way so that we could give the Taiwanese people a correct picture. This is what following Jesus looks like. Now, if I'm honest, that felt weighty to go and be a representative of Christ. This is what Christianity looks like. Just watch me. But here's the thing. As image bearers, this is actually what we're called to do every single day. Parents, let me ask you this question. Are you representing God's character to your children? If your kids wanted to know, what is God like? Could they look at you and say, I think God's probably a lot like my parents. Married couples, are you representing God's character to your spouse? Students, are you representing God's character to your classmates? Kids, are you representing God's character to your siblings? Adults, are you representing God's character in the workplace? Or maybe to ask it in summary form, if people wanted to know what God was like, could they just follow you around for a day? Now, in asking that question, here's where we have to be honest. While we were created in the image of God, sin has distorted the image. And the honest answer to that question, if they wanted to know what God was like, could they follow us around for a day? The answer to that is no. Because instead of reflecting the goodness and kindness of our God, we instead often reflect our own sinful and selfish hearts. And that's where we have to say this. Genesis 127 is ultimately pointing us to our need for Jesus. We were called to reflect the image of God and we failed miserably. But Jesus took on flesh. Colossians 1, and I don't think this language is unintentional. Colossians 1 says that he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus lived a perfect image-bearing life that we could not. He died on the cross for a death that we deserved, and then he rose from the dead. And if we trust in him, not only can our sins be forgiven, but get this, we then begin to be reshaped back into the image, of, back into the image bearer that we were meant to be. In fact, Colossians 3 says it this way, those in Christ are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of the creator. Ephesians 4 implores us to put on the new self, the one that's being created according to God's likeness. You should notice that language in Colossians and Ephesians is Genesis 1 language. In other words, what we're saying is this, we've all failed miserably as image bearers, but Jesus did what we could not. He lived the perfect image bearing life. And if we trust in Christ, his image bearing is credited to our account. And get this, he then begins to reshape us back into the image we were made to be. And therefore, we can start to say, this is what it looks like to follow Christ. Or this is what God's character is like because God is reshaping us. So listen, if you do not know Christ, and in a group this size, I'm guessing there are many in here today who don't know Christ. My encouragement is turn to him today for salvation. Because listen, you have distorted the image of God, and one day you will be held accountable. You will be. 
But Christ is your hope. He did what you could not do. He died the death you deserve to die. Now, if you know Christ, you should want others to hear about this good news. If we have this reality that we have distorted the image of God and there's only one hope that we could stand before a holy God, it seems to me that as Christians, we should want other people to hear about this. We should want others to know the good news about Jesus. Furthermore, as Christians, we should learn to rest in what God has made us to be. We should embrace our humanity. We are creatures, but we are also image bearers. And perhaps most importantly, we are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. So listen, there's no need for us to get down on our hands and knees and start eating grass because that's not who we are. Instead, let's embrace our humanity. Let's embrace our dependence. Let's embrace our limitations. Let's embrace the value we have as image bearers. And let's also embrace the, the responsibility that we have to bear his image to others. But most importantly, let's embrace Jesus Christ who came to rescue us from our sin so that we could then again be a restored image bearer. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and for the reminder that we have here in the book of Genesis that we are creatures. But we're not just creatures. We are image bearers. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to live that way even today. Lord, help us to live understanding our limitations, understanding our dependence, but also understanding our value, and most importantly, understanding what Jesus did. Lord, help us to do that for your glory, for our good, and for the sake of, good of, the, and for the sake of the good of those around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray all this. Amen. All right, one last thing before I get to the benediction. Today is the second Sunday of the month. Every second Sunday of the month, we have a benevolent offering, which is just an offering we take up to help people in our church who are hurting financially. So if that's you, please find us. We would love to help you. That basket is located out in the foyer. Our normal giving baskets are here in the sanctuary, but out by the pillar in the foyer is the benevolent offering basket. Okay, let's stand. Our benediction today is going to be from 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Short benediction today. 2 Corinthians 13, 14 says this, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Dear Smith, have a great week.